Please remember, the information in our podcast could be a trigger for some people. And if you or someone you know has been affected by sexual abuse. The free phone number for Sexual Violence Centre Cork is 1800 496 496. Hello, I'm Joyce. I'm June. And I'm Paula. We're the Kavanagh Sisters and we'd like to welcome you to our series of Count Me In Podcasts where we continue to shine a light on childhood sexual abuse and its impacts. In today's podcast we'll be talking to Mary Quilly, founder and director of Sexual Violence Centre Cork, a non-profit community organisation that was opened on International Women's Day on 1983 and has been providing services to victims of sexual violence for over 33 years. It's located at 5 Camden Place, Cork, and the phone number is 01800 496 496. Mary is a member of the Irish National Observatory on Violence Against Women. She holds an MA in Women's Studies and a Diploma in the Psychology of Criminal Behaviour. In 2000, she established OSS Cork, Domestic Violence Information Resource Centre, an NGO dedicated to providing support to victims of domestic violence. She is the author of Violence in Ireland, The Criminal Justice System, A Guide for Victims. She was the first in Cork to introduce counselling and support to women, men and teenagers who have experienced sexual violence or child sexual abuse. In 2019, University College Cork presented Mary with the inaugural Equality Award for her role in promoting equality, diversity and inclusion with a focus on her work as director of the Centre of Sexual Violence. The best news is that Mary very recently overcame stage 3 bowel cancer following a major operation and months of intense treatment and is more determined than ever to fight for survivors of sexual abuse. I'm going to open it up to you and we're going to start by if you could give us the background around how you actually started up this centre and why. It was really a fluke that I got involved in it. Like when you mentioned the degrees I got in the college I got, I only went to college for the first time when I was 50. So it wasn't coming from a background of kind of going to college young and kind of that kind of stuff. And I went when I was 50 because I was thinking um, the HSE and people were looking for people's credentials every time to pay them and I had nothing. So where the councils kind of had professional accreditation, so I thought I'd better do something. And then I found a diploma in the psychology criminal behaviour which suited me and then went on to the women's studies MA so that's kind of where that came from. Right. But back in 83 I was living in a big housing estate with my two daughters. I separated, I was struggling, I'd come from Dublin originally. My mother, my father died when I was very young so my mother was left with five of us which was quite difficult. So that's how I moved to Cork, I got married and moved to Cork when I was about 20, 21. I was kind of very lost, very lonely, very isolated, didn't know what to do about anything. My family were a great family but I think they only ever came to Cork maybe once or twice and I remember this woman approaching me who I was friendly with in the estate. The woman said to me one day that she was part of a, a group getting together to start up a rape crisis centre. That there's been a woman who'd been involved in Dublin rape crisis which started in 1979 and had moved to Cork and a group of them were meeting and would I come along and I said I'd be lost to plot because I'd never been part of any group ever in my life. Like when I left school I was lucky enough to get into the civil service as a clerical assistant, which was the lowest grade anybody could get, a woman could get in. The guys always went in on the grade of clerical officer. 
So then she introduced me to the group, and I remember going, and I remember thinking, God, I like this crowd, but I didn't know what they were saying. They were all academics or solicitors, and they had it all worked out to a tea what was needed, and I felt totally lost, and I thought, I'm not going to last six weeks here. Like, if you had asked me back then, would I be here 37 years later, I would have said, no, I hope. And that's how it started, that's how I got involved. And I noticed the bit by bit as the helpline opened and as women came in, the written group who were needed to really start her up, start to leave. When real women came in, the others kind of said, OK, this isn't what we want to do and left. And I remember thinking, you can't do that. You can't open a door and say, sorry, I'm closing it now because it's not theory anymore. It's kind of real people. And that's kind of what happened. And you've no background yourself in sexual abuse, have you? You've no personal history. I would have. I would, would have, yeah. And can you say a little about that? It would have been a neighbour when I was quite young. The usual thing, I think, somebody who would have been friends of the family. Like, he's now dead now, thankfully, but for a very short while. I think it was to do with coming around to my mother, who's the widow, and befriending people, you know. Yeah. And I think a lot of time I had a lot of anger back then, but if I look back, it was justified anger about different things. And it wasn't seen as something that could just be dealt out with. I think my mother was so caught up in trying to keep food on the table that this guy just saw his move and took it. Did you ever tell your mother? I did, I did. She was horrified. I told her as we got older, because I think I was feeling more being in here about something happened to me and never saying it to anybody. She really was shocked she didn't get it because she thought this man was being really nice, kind of befriending us, that kind of That's thing. That's the way they do it. Totally, totally. They groom everybody around them. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not just the victim. Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole picture. Yeah. And do you feel that that experience gave you to stay in power, to stick with this place as long as you have? Because I think you... part of it, I think part of it did, because... I think you can identify more. I'm not saying that you have to be abused to kind of work in a place like this, but I think you really get it and it gives you that extra edge to kind of really know what people are thinking and why they don't report and why they don't do something and how they're manipulated and all the victim blaming and that kind of thing. Yeah, because that deeper understanding is something very difficult to explain or hand over to somebody who has no experience mm. of it. Mm. Like we've often said that nobody understands like another victim. Yeah, And yeah. that's our life mission now is to help people understand that there's no exaggeration going on here. It isn't just a sexual act that occurs. It's a whole annihilation of a human being, of course. It is, it is. But it is. we have to help them to understand that that's not a woman overemphasising. And I think that to help women to understand like that, OK, you've got so much counselling, doesn't mean you're not going to get some kind of memory in a year later or you're going to remember everything again and think, God, has that changed? Like some counsellors feel once you've gone through this or spoken about this, that that's it. It's not that's it. Yes. I think it reduces the intensity. Yeah. I mean, that's my hope for counselling, that when people leave here, the intensity of what they're dealing with is massively reduced and their life is kind of a bit better. The benefits of going to counselling for a lot of people is that feeling that you're not alone, you're not going mad. And I think what counselling does is yeah. it's that first step to go it's actually okay to have a peek in there and see what's going Absolutely. on for me. Absolutely. So if that's all counselling yeah. ever does, then yeah. it's worth it. And I think people want to go to a counsellor who isn't afraid to hear what they have to say. Yeah. Who, you know, I kind of find with some counsellors, their clients will kind of say that they went somewhere before, but they end up minding the counsellor. Yeah. You know, yeah. kind of. The wrong facial expression when you tell somebody something, when you're a victim, especially if it's a counsellor, can absolutely destroy your life. Yeah. Because yeah. if she sits there looking horrified and shocked, she's horrified and sickened by you, not by what you're telling her. Yeah. yeah. I think they need to know when somebody comes into a rape crisis centre, like they go to an addiction centre, they're addicted, they go somewhere else to do something. When they come to a rape crisis centre, I think they want somebody who's quite strong, who's quite there, who's their feet on the ground, who's able to kind of work through with them, not who's going to be, God, you poor thing. You know, I think that's why in the centre here, we're quite proactive. Like we have two aims, and the first one would be basically to raise awareness, to educate, and then the second is the counselling. I know in other organisations the second comes first yeah. but we are adamant that 
feel it has to come first because only 10% of people will come into a centre. I mean, that's what all the research shows. Yeah. I'm a great believer if you don't need it, don't go. If you have a good friend, if you're not riddled with guilt and shame that the guy has put on you, well, then you might never need to go. But I think there's a lot of guilt put on survivors that if you haven't gone for counselling, you haven't recovered, you haven't taken the next step where they mightn't have to take the next okay. step. Now, um, you see, I, I agree with you in the fact that I don't think they need to go to counselling to get that, but there's absolutely no way if you're a victim of this crime that if you're not willing to go back in and look at what happened and how you changed as a result of that happening, then I don't think you're ever going to fully recover. Totally. Like, I suppose what I find in here, the shame and the guilt that's been riddled yeah. with, if you have somebody to help you kind of work through that. Yeah. I just hate seeing people who kind of come in and they're so guilty because that's it's it. a life has yeah. been so good. Yeah, you don't want to see them turning up no. just out of guilt. But whatever gets them in the door, I suppose. Totally. Yeah, and we, we personally felt that counselling put us on the ladder. It didn't bring us to Brilliant. heaven. Look at yeah. things, yeah. we're still constantly looking. Issues still arise for us. We're doing podcasts all the time. And the conversation we have might seem real life, but it gets us to think, oh God, like, geez, there's another thing we have to look at. It does not mean you're in total misery. Yeah. It just means there's another issue I can look at that and they'd be set free from it. The thoughts are one thing, it's the condition they leave behind yeah. that you're living yeah. with. Yeah. So Mary, tell us what services are provided here to victims. Okay, it's all one to one. There isn't any groups at the moment. Uh, we see over 14s, we're quite busy with over 14s because I think we're the only centre who has been seeing over 14s for a long, long time. Only secondary school tu- students on a Wednesday afternoon because they all have a half day. I mean, you'd find it nearly heartbreaking that either children who've been abused when they're a lot younger or kind of somebody who might have been raped when they're aged 13, 14. Mm. It's all child abuse, but I'm just yes. saying it could be somebody in their school with them, it could be somebody they met online, or it could be somebody who's abused them, a family member as a child. Have you got a waiting list? We do have a waiting list, but it's not too big. I think we manage it. Like I say, there's no waiting list for another 18. They just don't wait. That's the end of it. Because if you ask them to wait, you won't see them for dust. You just won't. They're gone. And I think what's important to them now, in two months' time, we'll have lost a certain amount of importance or something else will have taken over or they just can't cope. So if they want to come in with the support of families and people knowing about it and really looking at kind of who else is working with them, like what else do they need. In an organisation like this to work with anybody, it's important to see what other supports they have, whether it's GP, whether it's psychiatry, whether it's psychologist, whether it's whatever. And so if somebody came in for counselling and they said they've seen a psychologist or psychiatrist, we need them to know that they're coming in here too, because they might leave here feeling really distressed. Hopefully they won't, or they might be on medication and then the doctor's saying, this was working for you two months ago, what's happened? So we will all work together because it's all for the benefit of the client, but we won't go behind anybody's back. Right and report it, we'd ask them to kind of get a letter or kind of let us know what's happening. So the counselling's one-to-one. And what I mean, I say we manage it, like say we're on call 24 hours a day for a sex assault treatment unit. In my experience, people who've been raped will want to come in for a very short time initially, just to get over the shock of this happening, to be able to say, this happened to me because maybe I did consent, I can't remember, or I don't get them into trouble. And I think the bottom line is it's very hard to say I was raped. Jesus Christ, now I'm one of those people. I think they can manage it or survive better initially if they say, Maybe I didn't want that sex, but I don't want to call it that. So their initial thing would be come in for six or eight weeks, which is what often say they want. So we manage that fairly well. That's what I mean. They're in straight away and they're they're not waiting. They're in straight away the minute they ring. And then the other counselling is one-to-one, which could be for a year max. I and mean, we, we had to kind of put a limit on it because you have people waiting. 
But by doing that, our own waiting list is only a couple of months long. But if somebody rings in today now, Mary who you met before had somebody earlier on this morning said, and the first thing she said to me was, I need to take her in. So we'll take her in. You'll have somebody who'll kind of say, look, I've waited this long, I can wait a bit longer, don't worry about it, and it'll give me time to sort the kids, sort the time, sort off work. Somebody else walks in this morning who has been abused in the past and, and the counsellor identifies that she needs to be seen now, so she will be, to help her through the crisis. You're unique in terms of a short waiting list and your description sounds like it's very heart-centred. Where do you get your funding from? We get from Tusla. And I think the problem, we're, we only signed our services out of agreement, this is March, we only signed our services out of agreement a couple of weeks ago for this year and we'll have to sign it again at the end of the year for next year. So you're not really sure Is the funding sufficient? It's not. And you only get it on a monthly basis. Right. And we have to give reports in every quarter. You give in your accounts every every 12 weeks. Can you imagine trying to do everything else? And your activity figures, which is who came in, how many times they come in, stuff. You need a full-time person who just Absolutely, doing that, which yeah. we don't have. Because yeah, and they don't fund that either. No, because what we do is we spend our funding on, on councils. We have very little admin. We have somebody in this year for the first time doing some admin just to catch up on policies and procedures. But we only have foreign and fixed contract because we were always determined that any money that was here was going to come into council. Like even if you see the stuff we do in education and training and awareness and social media, we don't have anybody else to do that. No. Well, I have to ask about the elephant in the room when it comes to Tusla. What do you think of their latest legislation that they're already... I'm appalled. Thank you. I'm appalled by it. The fact that the perpetrator might be in the room, I'm appalled by yeah. it. And I think, I really think we need to start rising up and stopping it. And, and I feel like really the forms we have to send in, I feel like not sending them in anymore. I talk to other agencies about this because... I know they're all about child protection, but if I thought for one second, right, send something in and the perpetrator might see it because Tusla are afraid that they might take him to court because the perpetrator's rights aren't seen to be due process or something. Right, yeah. It's outrageous. It's outrageous. Well, it's sad to think that's what's driving them. It is what's driving them. Yeah, yeah, that is. That's how, how it came to be. But they're not even embarrassed to say that. But it gets me when people say Tusla or the health board, it's somebody in there who's making that decision. Yeah. Talking to other organisations, some of them, because of that legislation and because of their new policy guidelines, have actually changed their own policy and guidelines. So because they have to send in reports from clients, yeah. they're very vague. And also they don't uh, encourage or force the victim to actually give names. Yeah, well, we, we don't either. Sometimes ours, I think, are shorter than anybody's. It's like even the notes that councils keep. It's, it's like four lines, that's all they can keep anymore. They can't keep pages anymore because I'm sick and tired of councils kind of saying, you know, we need to do something about court, we need to do something about notes being asked for. You don't, you need to do something about what the councils are writing. Yeah. Like, why do they need to see somebody and then write pages of, yeah. of stuff? Why do they need that? I mean, you can have process notes and then you can have notes, client notes. The person who's going to suffer is the woman or the man going to court and all these things are produced up there and the other side will have a ball. Yes. So we keep looking at things I think the wrong way. You like blame the court and say they shouldn't be asking for them. I blame the councils who are writing these pages up there. Yeah. And councils have gone on to me, even recently one um, who's a private councillor who knows her notes if they get up, if she sends them all up and destroy somebody. And I've pleaded with her not to send them all up. So we've kind of got round that in a way. It's about being victim-centred. It's not about what goes on after that. And it's I, about what are you doing that's the best for them. And my fear with Tusa is even if we write three things, they still could still interview the woman, find out who the guy is and bring him in anyway. And again, we've asked other agencies, have, have they ever asked you to go in and give evidence about victim behaviour, give training Never. about victim behaviour, about what can they expect when there's a perpetrator sitting across from them, Never. how manipulative they can be. They haven't well, asked no. anybody from this no. organisation to no. ever go in and help them. 
It was one yeah. of our driving forces to do these interviews as well, and it's really reassuring for us to hear that all of the organisations are as appalled as we are. The councillors here have to keep our guidelines, yeah. that's it. Because, I mean, we're very serious that the clients coming here are clients of the centre. They're not Mary's clients or my clients or Dola's clients. Or yes. They're centre clients, and this is what you do. Right. Is there anything that we can do to stop them? Oh, I think there is. But if you look at the changes we've made in Ireland, different amendments, different things, won't we stand up and rise? Like even last week watching that programme about the dress. My but then God, them want to hide everything for 75 yeah. years. I know I was watching signatures kind of going ahead for that. But I think with this, Petitions. we really have to kind of really do make something. sure it doesn't We'll probably have to march. Or, we know there's somebody in there making decisions. Is there somebody in there that we could actually speak to? And that's the problem. I find all these agencies, up. they seem to change. But I think if we got every other organisation working in the area not to send in forms anymore and make a deal out of that. But if uh, you do that, would they not punish it in other ways? I'd love it. Bring us to court. I'd love it. Bring it on. <laughs> no, because then, because then you can go somewhere and yeah. you can say we're not doing this because we don't agree with this. And it'd be highlighting the issue, which totally. is the only way this will work is if all of the agencies stand together. I agree and with go, you. Yeah, we're not, not sending them anymore. Just and so happen. far, it's looking like that can happen because anybody we're speaking know. to now is feels exactly the same way. Yeah. So that's very encouraging. Too. Let's make this the campaign for this year. Yeah. Let's make it because it's huge, and I think people will be horrified. If they thought that if they report, then their daughter or their son or whoever's going to be faced with the perpetrator. I find people, if they report it to us or if they're going to report to the guards, part of them believes they're going to get justice because they might not have been involved in these agencies before and then they get quite a land. Yeah. You know, so I think it just has to be stopped. We have to really shout and roar about it. And this, I think, is the big campaign that we need to do this year and really move on it. And with the other agencies, like one and four, like yeah. Towards Healing, like Dublin Rape Crisis, like, you know, I'm part of a managers forum where there's nine of us I think rape crisis centers to meet regularly right um we can be quite powerful and we were surprised we thought people would be reluctant to speak up against them because of their funding like to have people uh, tied up with independent on their funding this I think when, when you talk to somebody who they see the guy at a Christmas party or they see him at home during the summer holidays and how devastating it is for him and then they see them in town and then to say that not only will you be sitting there, but you're going to ask you questions. Yeah. Yeah. When they recognise like the coercive nature of sexual abuse and how devious perpetrators are, and then to hand them carte blanche access to their victim and be able to question them, and absolutely, yeah. it doesn't. It just is just beyond belief that somebody would, came up with that idea. I would love to meet the person that came up to the people out there who say haven't come forward yet, or even to those who are currently in therapy. The first thing you're going to think is it's not safe. Absolutely. can't talk freely. So what am I going there for? So what you're saying to them is I don't believe you. Yeah. What I do in here is if we were advising somebody or say this is what we have to do, I tell them exactly what's coming down the tracks. Even for the ones who we have signed up before, I've kind of contacted them and said this is coming down the tracks. So they can decide when they get a phone call from Tusa whether to respond to it or not. Right. Give them some kind of power back, but I'm not prepared to sit back and say it might or it mightn't happen. Okay. Commissioning is coming in whereby in the future, I think Tusa will kind of say, we want um, so many hours of counselling in a certain area, who's going to do it? And so people be it? There would be. I mean, if you think about those um, huge, big counselling organisations who work together, people who work together in the counselling group, and they might say, look, we can provide 1,800 counselling hours for... um, 250,000 we might say well we couldn't do it for less than 500 because we do all the kind of backup and stuff and they're going to go for the lesser amount that's what I see happening and um, there's an organization in Tusa 
domestic and sexual violence who we're dealing with and that was a separate unit there was about 12 or 14 people working in it they're all now under the umbrella of commissioning mm. so commissioning is happening but like i say anytime we put um a bid in now for our service level agreement it really has been commissioned to provide this service like I say at the moment we so they're going to be doing what other government agents are they're putting everything out to tender that's what's going to happen that's so it's the lowest happen. bid gets it regardless of yeah, the quality I mean, it's, it's not happening yet but it is it is on the books because what they tend to do is if they're opening up in different areas now like say if there's gaps in red crisis centres in different areas they'll approach the local centres first do you want to put in a bid for this if it ever happened where a centre didn't they will go for the other bid. It's not like kind of coming to a centre and saying, okay, you're the closest, so we'll give you this much to keep what you're doing down there. Like I think the old HEC would have done, bad and all as they were. Right. Commissioning seems to be where and when some do you think that's things is happening. It's kind of happening already, because I think even if you look at national helplines, and you could check that with Nolene, they're all commissioned at this stage to provide a service. There's West Cork, there's a gap in West Cork. We used to be in West Cork, and when the cutbacks came, it closed down, and there's tools that want to open up in West Cork, but they've approached three different agencies, including us, to see who wants to run it, where the ex- expectation would be they'd automatically come to us and say, look, there's an extra few bob to open it. So you're, you're talking about, and they've spent a fortune doing what they call scoping exercises around the country, a fortune. If you had half of what they spent on scoping exercises, you could have opened up in North Cork, East Cork, West Cork, everywhere. So it's just one to keep an eye on. So they're more interested in being able to provide a service regardless of the quality of I the service. I think so, and our, our battle is that uh, it can't be generic counsellors who provide it, there has to be some kind of expertise, or my thing is what happens to the people coming in in crisis, what happens to those going to settle, what happens to the people who knock here on a Friday evening at four o'clock or half four or on a Monday morning because it's been a long weekend or it might be going to be a long weekend. It's, it's gone backwards, isn't it? It is going backwards because if you have an appointment with a counsellor, you'll have it on a certain day every week and it could be even in their own premises. Which is another difficulty, I think. Oh my God. So it's just one to watch. So let's get back to the centre. How many councillors do you actually have? We three, and we're taking on another part time one. Um, We got 20,000 from Catherine Zappone, and she gave everybody 10% extra, which I think we were all hoping that we'd just be given the 10% extra to do what we wanted with or to take somebody on, do whatever, but no, Tusa decided what everybody's going to have to do with it. If you did access therapy here, is there a cost? No. It's free? It's free. Wow. Yeah. I'd, I'd love yeah. to talk to you about that. This is a dilemma I have sometimes. Okay. And to me, it's about power and it's about control and it's about... If somebody gets something for free, then that gives me all the power if I was a therapist. And I'm wondering, say, if somebody was asked to pay a tenner, I'm not talking about 50 euro or 60 euro or even a fiver or something. We're not given some kind of ownership. Firstly, we believe it should be government funded, that this is such a tragedy, that the struggle to try and pay for counselling on top of what you're dealing with is so unfair. If money's going to exchange hands, it should be handed to a receptionist prior to the counselling session, because if you've had a particularly rough session, for example, and then you had to stand up in bits and hand money to somebody, it just demolishes the house. I think like, you just feel they're only listening to me because they're paid. Unlike other things, that I, I think when you don't pay for things, you have a tendency to value it less. In this particular, for instance, as somebody who went through the system, would I like free counselling? Would it have encouraged me to go more? Would it encourage me to get help? Absolutely. Okay, okay. In this particular case, for this treatment, there shouldn't be a cost. Okay, okay. And it doesn't make the person who's coming feel less powerful. Okay. Yeah. And as a person who isn't paying you to listen to me, 
I would get so much more out of that session than if I had to pay you a tenner. Okay, okay. No, that's good to know yeah. it's because it's something that's been going yeah. on yeah. And yeah. The, the relationship that develops and grows between the victim and the therapist overrides that likelihood of not valuing it because it costs you nothing. Because this, the subject matter is just too intense and too serious. And money just isn't in your yeah, thinking yeah, when yeah. you're breaking down your life experience to somebody. The fact that you're there because you want to be there, yeah, not because you're going to make money out of it. And there's you. something wrong if there's, there's power imbalance. Oh, it's yeah. just, you're just trying to get it right. And I mean, I hope we don't. I hate to see a stage where people coming in to be counsel for something that wasn't their fault that, that happened to them because yeah. they have to pay it. I hate to see that. Yeah. yeah. People coming in who will realise and say that they've had a really great therapist and they're in the middle, right in the middle of something. And the council stopped because they couldn't afford it. And it's like, oh my God. Cork is very lucky to have you. Honey, I'll tell you that. And that's a sad reality of going for help. Yeah. Is one, there's not enough of your kind of centres around the place. So people have to go private. If you go private, it costs money. If you go private, you've no... You've no assurances that you would have coming to a centre like this. Because if I was coming here and something happened with my particular therapist, you'd move me on to another therapist. Absolutely, You're yeah. going private. That's it. You're yeah. gone. See yeah. ya. And you would fall back up the centre of... And you feel like you have to start all over again at day one, telling your story. Yeah. Which was hard enough to do the first time around. Yeah. How many clients currently do you have in the centre? We'd have an average of about 50 a week coming in. I think the figures last year we had about 2,000 phone calls and I think it was 500 clients coming in. Now some of them would be just like I say the short term people and I'm not minimising. Sometimes people like when I say short term they minimise it as if it's not important but I think if you're helping somebody who's just been raped to go over the shock of it. Yeah. Because I'd often say to them do you really think people like that would want long term counselling because it's like you know, if you're at a grave of somebody and they've just been buried and somebody taps you on the shoulder and says the bereavement counsel's up in the house, you think they've gone mad. They just want some kind of, I'm not going mad. Because after rape, people think they're going mad because they have feelings they've never experienced before. The guy will naturally text them the next day and say, do you want to meet tonight? Or 80% of the time it's somebody who they know. Yeah. And they manipulate them and they text them and they play head games. So the girls left there wondering, did this really happen the way I thought it would happen? Does this really happen? Because he'll act as if totally normal. And he will be texting her the next day, just checking has she done anything or has she not done anything. They fascinate me, the perpetrators fascinate me who rape because they do it so close to home. Like you'd have somebody in who said she was raped by her best friend's husband. Right. You know, somebody's raped by her brother's friend who's always in the house. And they do it so close. It's scary that they're arrogant and feel that entitled. And they know they can do it so close and nothing will happen to them. They're not going 50 miles up the road where they're not known. They're doing it. Like child yeah. sex abuse, they're doing it there. Yeah. They make so many excuses for these guys that are doing it. And, you know, it's about time we start calling them all out. I've been saying to all the young men when I go to places, call your pals out, the guys that are groping girls up on Washington Street, the guys that are doing this, the guys where you know, sure, he's a bit like that, start calling him out. Or just picture your sister being groped by him or being raped by him and let's see how you do it. Because we need to, you need to stop making excuses for them. It's like that campaign that's going on at the moment, the government campaign about consent and the guy standing at the bar rubbing your woman's back yeah, yeah. and somebody said, he's just waiting for a drink, he's not doing anything. If you come up in a culture like that, then that doesn't look like anything and it doesn't stand yeah. out. And until people go in and say, hang on, that's not appropriate, exactly. that people will even think twice and go, yeah. actually, that might not be the right yeah. thing to do. And then if you complain, you're told you're being, you know, she's a bit of fun, like, yeah. what's wrong with you? You were saying there was a... Um, 
a year maximum time limit on it, it can be extended but we try and keep it to that depending on the waiting list but the supervision we do in here we have somebody who doesn't work in the centre and she comes in twice a month and then every we, we kind of meet every Tuesday afternoon one way or the other and she's here like two three Tuesdays a month with us and then the other Tuesday we do peer supervision so if see if somebody's with somebody and they're saying look I know we're trying to keep it for a year but this person needs longer to get longer it's not like you know, yeah. tick, tick, yeah. tick, your, your 40 or 52 weeks is up, out to go. It is kind of looking at kind of what we can do within yeah. that time. <clears throat> and if it's not enough, well then, it's not enough. Do you have the resources to, to have research on, you know, how many people pass through, or how long they're likely to take? Oh, we have and, all that. We have yeah. all that gathered, yeah. So you have a rough idea of how long a person generally takes yeah. to pass through the building. Yeah. And would that be, did you say, is that the year that you're talking about? About that. And some are shorter. Even the ones who are shorter will come in again. Right. You know, they... They, they can dip in and out exactly. as they need it. And especially the young people, you might see, like, you know, this particular young man who's um, 15, 16, he'll kind of message me maybe on a Sunday night to say, can I come in? And then you mightn't see him for weeks. But I'm also in touch with his parents to say he's been in touch. Right. The, uh, the majority of your clients are literally rape victims. It's about 50-50. About 50% with rape. With historic? And 50% historic, right. yeah. But the ones who are historic, are they come, do you find they're coming forward earlier? Yeah, younger? I do. Like say when we opened, I remember there was women in their 70s coming in who didn't want counsel but just wanted to tell their story. Yeah. I remember even a few people asked me to go to nursing homes and... I, I don't do counselling in here, so I was saying what you want, and they didn't want a counsellor, they just wanted somebody who wanted to tell oh, a story yeah. before, right. they, before they went, that yeah. kind of thing. But they're coming a lot younger. I think we have such visibility in Cork, like say, yesterday and the day before, I was out in UCC, all day yesterday and all day the day before, and we're out in all third level colleges, and we're out kind of shouting, and we bring them all in. Like The kids love coming in here, this is like, yes, there's about 40 young people in here, but it was like, as far as they were concerned, it was their place. But it means that something is happening right, that if you're getting them in younger... They've their life ahead of them. Yeah. You know? Yeah, we didn't even know it was wrong. Ten what was years happening. ago. No. We didn't know no. what was happening. We didn't know if it was right or wrong. And we didn't know we could... We had anybody we could turn to. And so there's nobody there to tell you this shouldn't be happening. You were... You did nothing wrong. None of that. We had no, no. information. No information about sex. Like, that's all changing. But we do have to be careful coming up the line is the internet the sex education some young people are getting from there and how unrealistic that is in relation to actually real sex and real and relationships. It's, I mean, because I spoke at the Rahama conference last week, I was supposed to talk about, you know, the connection between sexual violence and pornography. And in schools, I'd see young ones kind of saying to me, um, you know, they catch you kind of at the side and say, um, my boyfriend wants me to have sex with him, but he says I have to do it from behind. Tried it and it's very painful for her, but she doesn't know that's not, no, you don't have to do that. You yeah. don't have to do that. Yeah. Now, maybe that's what he wants, but no. Yeah, and you see, it's that kind of message that needs to be normalised, as in you ha those yeah. conversations have to be normal conversations that happen in our communities, in our, with our kids, sitting around the dinner table, in our programmes. So that that just becomes normal, that, that that girl wouldn't be sitting there in a dilemma about, yeah. is that right or wrong? One of my daughters, I have two daughters, one of them is in Oslo now, she's two children and the little one, um, she's five now and she's in kindergarten. She sent me a link last week of all the parents who brought to a meeting about identifying sexual violence and all this kind of thing and how to talk to kids. And they're talking to them and they had a big rainbow day there another day. This is kindergarten. Brilliant, isn't it? It's quite normal to them like that, yeah. you know, a pushing, shoving, if bullying just is not accepted that's it so from that age group is normal then it goes on to anything else so it's not a huge fright it's they're told at that stage this yeah. isn't done
If somebody rang up here for an appointment and they were and they got one, would they know in advance who they're going to be seeing? No. No. They'd be told, like say if somebody rang today, they'd get an appointment either there or the next day. Okay. For an initial. Like that's and then they see probably Mary who you met downstairs, she yeah. seems to do a lot of initials. She's a counsellor here, she's here over thirty years. So she might not necessarily be who they'd stay with, is that? Not necessarily. Right. So that's the initial yes, assessment. Yeah. yeah. And they'd be told at the time. It might be me or it might be one of the others, but then usually once they get someone, that's it. It rarely changes right. after that. So and has any of them ever asked to switch counsellors, any therapists? Once. Yeah. Once, a long time ago. And we did switch. Yeah. And I think right. it was just a personality thing that's or something. That's right, that's going to happen. Like. I think when you treat it like as if, I don't like everybody, everybody doesn't like me. Um, I know as therapists I would have gone to in the past and some that I found great, some that I found awful. I think we treat as black and white as that. But I do take it seriously if somebody says, I want to change, I do want to know, is it something we're doing or not doing? Because if I don't, then they're not free to kind of keep going as they are here, do you know? Yeah. Now, if, if money wasn't an object here, what would you like to do with the centre? Like, Work with teenage girls. Yeah. I mean, I do a lot of stuff to schools, and one of my big things is the young social innovators. You know, we have schools kind of went to the young social innovators competition. Yeah. Also, incredible. <coughs> it's kind of in transition year, right. um, where the transition year students take on a project. It could be, like I say, there's a few schools doing it this year. One is doing trafficking, one is doing consent, one is doing bullying. Or they could easily do green grass or put your seatbelt on. Do they on. choose the topic? They do. Yeah, yeah. They do. Brilliant. Often you'll be brought out to a school to talk to them and maybe three other people about different areas. Like say the guys, you can be sure if you go to a guy's school, they'll want to do knife culture or something. Yeah. They'll want to do that. Or, or they'll do trafficking because they can be the pimps. Right. Um, <laughs> play into it, like. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then for the year, they have to do a project on it, not just a simple project. Right. They'd have a conference. Um, like, say, young ones there last year with me where I was on Patrick Street about trafficking. There were young ones from a school where they said they'd never go into this town because the boys would see them and they'd know them because they were talking about sex trafficking and it was quite, quite full on. Three months later, they were strutting their stuff down Patrick Street about prostitution and trafficking and that kind of thing. And it really gives them great confidence. So yeah. often, I. I'd be in a school and the guys would say, look, I'm doing something on drugs, will you get me something? And I'd say, Junior, you're a pain, you need to do this yourself, but I will, I'll send it in to you. Because it's about, the way I feel about sexual violence is we're involved in a huge amount of committees in Cork, say the PPN, which includes all the resident associations, all the community groups, all that kind of stuff, because it's about one in five women raped in a lifetime, one in five girls and one in five, one in seven boys raped as children. So it's about, it happens, let's get it out there. I just don't want it hidden in this building. So we're part of a lot of things in the community to not normalise it, not say it's okay because it isn't all right, but to say it is there now and you need to keep talking about it, you need to wake up. It is there. Yeah. So it's the same with the schools, but with the YSI, in a few weeks now, next week on the 25th, there'll be a big speak out in the City Hall, and they have it in Dublin as well, where all these projects have three minutes to talk about the project and then they get into a competition to go to Dublin to win. It was Sister Stan who would have started this years ago. Yeah, it's incredible yeah. because like one of the first things they do would be the whole school has to be know, know about whatever project they're working on. They have to go into every class and train them and they have to go into different schools and they have to go online. They have to do a huge amount of work. Um, and competition is fierce. Like years ago they did very little and they got to Dublin but now it's mad competition. This is definitely really your and life, isn't school, it? Yeah. A school... Um, Brilliant school, Warnock now, last year, the year before, I think they were from Dundalk. Have you seen that video about the consent to tea party? Yeah. You know, kind of. Oh, yeah, how do you like your tea? Okay. Kind of, yeah. And, you know, you wouldn't shove it down somebody's throat. Yeah. Okay, they took that and put it in a swimming pool. 
where you know the young man's voice to, who was in school was speaking about okay last week she came with you and she got in the deep end this week she doesn't even want to tip her toe in it was the tea party but they changed it wrong yes. but they won it so you can imagine all the students around the country who yeah. got to see that. Got to see that. And sometimes the stuff they'd say, I'd be kind of like, oh my God, I'd be afraid to talk that bluntly in a school, but they're just go for it, you know? Brilliant. What I, mean? I think the young people are incredible. They yeah. give me great energy, great life. They energise me. Or like the UCC crowd, you know? But more so, I think, the younger kids right. in the schools because they really so much want to learn, want to take it in, want to change, want to make a difference. And they did it with the amendments. They did it in the past few years with things. So I think they have a right to know what's going on. Would you say you're more determined now than you ever were? Totally. I feel like I'm not to lose. And I feel frustrated when I see, um, and angry when I see what Toos are trying to do, like taking a step back. Um, and we're very much part of the Turn Off the Red Light campaign and the campaign with Rachel Moore. And when I see that campaign dwindling or legislation being reviewed again, I've, no, I've never known in my life legislation to be reviewed again. The other side would come across as kind of, she was great fun and she was in great having 17 men raping your day and we're in total control and all this rubbish that I wouldn't even listen to it because I mean who's going to get involved in it they say the majority are European Eastern European or African or Brazilian like we've seen eight women in here who've been trafficked and they were brought from brothels they were rescued from brothels their stories is like counselling just wouldn't you just even wouldn't go there with them what we do with them is kind of if they're in direct provision as soon as they leave we find them somewhere to live we don't just say God is going to be very hard we physically get up off our arses and go out and look for places like two of them we start up in businesses and one was knitting one was an online thing somebody else went to college like I mean the third PLC they still come in and out a bit and their life are horror stories again it all boils down to the lack of education and understanding that anybody who goes into prostitution even if somebody thinks they're going in out of choice grooming has done right on a young girl the way it was on us as kids. Yeah. She's going to think she actually has a choice in it. And she's going to think she's doing it out of her own choice. Or she's going to have to make herself believe it to stick to be, to able, be able to do it. To be able to do it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I just it's trying to feel that there's the option for young girls that if you're young, even if you're not so young, that that's what you can do. Yeah. It's, it's horrific. You should be on Tommy Tim. Like I watched that programme where you had that woman on it that was the prostitute was going in and how to pay their rent and all this and I was thinking, Oh my god, you need a balance here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She's not representing No, she glamorises because yeah. she was I was speaking in UCC now on Saturday, um and she was on after me. You know, because this is what kills me say about um some academic students where they might call themselves a feminist but still run right her side. I can't see how it could be a feminist and say it's okay to abuse women. I just and I'm sorry if she's making me. 300 euro an hour. But like without knowing anything, if a man hands over 300 euro to spend an hour with me, I'd love to think like they're all Prince Charmings and they're wonderful gentlemen. Clean. You know, but you can only imagine the rights they think that entitles them totally. to after handing over that kind of money. And I don't it. care what do, spin yeah. you put on that. That is not. No. That is not okay. No, but June, did you hear yeah, <coughs> I did. She, she sounded very convincing. Oh, I know, and that's the tragedy of that it. Is and the very next day, I saw an article yeah. on Facebook saying that college students are turning into prostitution to pay their inorbitant rents. You know, the, their student yeah. fees. Yeah, their student fees. Yeah. But if you tell a young person who, say, has their type of background, so you're already ripe for picking for pimps or for whatever, right? You're already out there and you're ready to be picked up and you don't even know any better. But if you tell that person then who has no life, no money, no education and that feeling of hopelessness and then say to them, come and work in this field, Absolutely. she can be earning 300 an hour. Yeah. 
You can make your own hours. Come and go as you please. Have your own apartment. Be able to pay for anything you need. Like, who isn't going to jump absolutely, at that when you're absolutely. already coming from a damaged... Absolutely, yeah. I so, mean, that's poverty, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I really do sympathise with the work Rachel Moran is doing at the moment because I feel she's got as much a battle on her hands as we have. It's the same thing. It is. You know, and I just feel, you know, the struggle to help people understand and view it from the perspective of the person that it's happening to instead of, you know, sitting objectively going, sure, it's no harm. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. woman. It's yeah. only sex. People don't understand yeah. sexual abuse because they think it's sex and yeah. it's not. Yeah. And it's no harm, and sure, especially if a young woman who's sexually active gets raped, as I keep hearing it, sure, I mean... Sure, it's only another one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the reality is I think there's very few women allowed to work on their own. I mean, the pimps yeah. aren't going to kind of say, off you go, like, sure, you want to do your own money, sure, I'll leave you be and yeah, I'll yeah. just take money off the other four. That's yeah. not going to happen. I know. And that's been shown in Germany and Amsterdam and different places where they legalised it. And that was a very important point uh, where when they decriminalise, if they manage to decriminalise prostitution in, in, in its entirety, they're handing carte blanche over to the pimps. Totally. And, and, the and nobody's minus. mentioning yeah. that at all. Yeah. They're kind of going... Oh, well, isn't it for, for the prostitutes' own good? Yeah. But you see, not enough of the other messages going out there. Not enough of the balance is going out there. Yeah. And that's why that legislation gets slipped through under the table. Because even good, right-minded people who don't know any better are thinking, look, it should be, should be safer. Yeah. And it's going to happen anyway. So, you know, at least let them do it. But they're usually arrested. conned mm. by somebody that does know, you know, exactly what decriminalisation means. And there's huge money this. That's, 40 billion, that's yeah. the whole thing. I mean, don't they say drugs, guns and prostitution are the biggest errors yeah. and now it's prostitution is the biggest Yeah, because they were saying you use used. the drugs yeah. once and they're gone. Yeah. It's, it's all about money. Yeah. And I mean, you know, get, with the trafficking campaign, we have this big one in Cork, Cork and it's human trafficking. The campaign we started last July and um, we have the guards in it, we have free legal aid in it, City Hall is in it, um, NASC Cork or immigrants are in it, uh, Sanctuary Cork, because Cork is City of Sanctuaries in it. A number of other organisations, but there's only people who run these organisations are allowed to come to the meetings because they didn't want it to be get dissolved. And I'm not taking away from what people do in organisations, but there's no point in having somebody say, I'll yeah. go back and talk to my boss. I think since July, we've really made an impact in Cork about human trafficking and you know, prostitution, and we're also going to extend it now to labour trafficking because there's so many young girls trafficked into nail bars, so many young guys trafficked into other kind of farming or fisheries. Or that kind of. So do you have somebody in charge of um, your webpage? And well, Dora, who you met a while ago, um, we have this lovely young woman who helps us design things. Ellie, she does it kind of on the side, um, but we do the social media ourselves here. We don't have anybody who does it. And I think with social media, it's like what you do. It depends on the voice. Yeah. You know, you kind of want to bring people along with you. You want to kind of say, look, what do you think of this? Or this is happening? Or, um, look, I need to keep learning all the time. Like even, you know, when we started the human trafficking thing or when... I didn't really know what was going on, so I have to kind of get people around me who, who know it, and even with this committee with you know, legal aid or the guards or city hall or people like that inform them about it. I don't think we'll change that unless we can just get together and do it together. Like, yeah. you know, like I think we need to get together with the Tulsa thing before they have perpetrators interviewing their victims. Yeah. We can't do it on our own. I think yeah. that's, we can't allow that to happen. No. We just can't. But it is about how do you penetrate an organisation that up to now has no accountability and will never be held to account. So we need to find out how to get in there and make somebody totally. accountable. Because totally. then they'll start listening and then they'll start looking for help. Yeah, because yeah. it's not the only thing they're doing wrong. So nothing gets done properly. It's not only that, it's they wouldn't have the, the knowledge or the information. No. Like, 
these are like intellectuals trying to know what's going on on the I, ground. I could have a solicitor kind of coming along saying, okay, these guys are going to take a court case, so you better do ABC. Yeah. Yeah. It could be as black and white as that. So. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't matter who these people yeah, are. No thinking. It's like court cases. I yeah. mean, I find over the past 37 years, the guards have changed hugely and how they are and how they are with people has really changed. You go into the court, you're back. You're just yeah. way back there. Nothing has changed. And that's one of our pet hates as well, is the judges. But the arrogance of them to assume they don't need to be trained and they think they know everything. Yeah. That they, and now, somebody said to us they might be receiving private training somewhere. But there's the juries who are finding people not guilty. Oh, I know, but yeah, they're... But juries also, don't know. And my, my whole argument has always been all along here, why isn't an expert called in on all of the cases, regardless of that's my who it is, and you see to sit the there judge, and say, this is normal victim yeah. behaviour, this is why that woman won't be able to tell you that and story. And you see, if a judge yeah. was educated on this topic, he could call in an expert witness to speak, and he can also advise the jury. Like, he has a role to play in it. You can understand a jury finding somebody guilty if they don't understand. You're saying he raped you, and then you went to his fucking wedding, like. Yeah. What's that about? Like they wouldn't understand that a victim wouldn't know any different. If they understood that victims think like this, act like this, and this is the reason for it, and perpetrators think, act, and do this for this reason. Yeah. If they knew that much, and later then yeah. they could actually come up with something. We're definitely on the same page there because I've been thinking for years that local juries were taken out of the room when they're told to pick their yeah. chairperson. That then there's somebody in there, yeah, giving them the myths, giving them all yeah. the stuff yeah. before yeah. the case started, so they wouldn't be told when well, you're interfering with the case or just told myths. Because yeah. you see it in court, you see where a barrister will say she didn't say it for two weeks. That's very unusual. And then the next time you're in the court, he's on your side, and he said to jury. It's very common now not to report it. Yes. Yeah. So Mary, is there anything that we haven't uh, mentioned that you'd like to highlight? It was my, my thing that really gets to me like is the victim blaming. And everywhere I go, that's my big thing. I just can't bear it. Like you can see, you know, say with sexual assault in, in adulthood, I'd see men maybe in their fifties who are raped or I see elderly women who've been raped and I see society's response is that this is wrong, it's appalling and they see it really clearly, really sharp this is so wrong, this guy had no right to do this. But then when a young girl gets raped, it's a grey area and that does my head in. Because you have the same attitude, yeah. the same mentality, the same sense of entitlement. So why, when it's a young girl, all of a sudden is it her fault? And that's a young life that's been destroyed, that's a young life who not only is being blamed, but she's blaming herself. So we need to keep talking, keep talking, keep really keep the conversation going. Problem with consent is a bit like the rough sex, where they say women are dying from rough sex. Yeah. They're not; they're dying from violence. The guys who are raping don't want consent. I see it starting to come up, where they're kind of saying, "Well, are you sure he had consent?" So the victim needs to prove that he had. But consent classes were emphasising that by saying it's ludicrous to go to a university, ludicrous, and to assume that men, because they are all men don't know what consent means, they do know what consent means. They know precisely what it means. Right. And men who are raping don't want consent. And I think consent classes, young women have said it helps them whether they're in great relationships but the guy wants sex every night and they're saying, I know now I don't have to do that every night or I don't have to do it a certain way. But the other way around is appalling to for young men to say, Well I thought I was getting consent. I mean the majority of young men aren't doing this and those that are doing it know exactly what they're doing. And Mary would like to thank you very much. And you'll be back in Cork later on in the year. We absolutely <laughs> yeah. will. But an absolute pleasure. Brilliant and to have you here. Cork are lucky to have you because I can tell by all of the resources and all of the services that you provide here in the centre, it's all driven from your heart and your belief in what's right and wrong here. 
And if there wasn't somebody like that at the helm, you'd just get same old, same old. And so I'm absolutely proud and honoured to know that you're walking here and delighted to have this open to you. Thank you for listening. Hopefully some of the information we've shared will resonate with you and bring you to a place where you can have compassion for yourself. Please know that no matter how you feel or how you respond to the abuse, it was normal. We're hopeful and optimistic that those in a position of power to bring about change will be moved into action so we can finally eradicate childhood sexual abuse. So please spread the word and share the information. The decision to heal from childhood sexual abuse places you on the most important journey of your life. You're in charge of this journey. Only you know what works for you and what doesn't. It takes as long as it takes because there's no rush in it and there's no fake in it. You have to feel it. And just as the ripple of pain that you're in goes out and impacts all of those around you, so does the healing. And the more you heal, the more everyone around you benefits from your healing. You've been listening to the Kavanagh Sisters podcast. You can contact us through Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or email the Kavanagh Sisters at gmail.com.